How do people choose their career? How do they change jobs? How do they even change careers? These are important questions that we don't have great answers to, but structured data with the dynamics of labor markets are starting to emerge. And that's what Ben Zweig is modeling at Revelio Labs. An economist and data scientist, Ben is indeed the CEO of Revelio Labs, a data science company analyzing raw labor data contained in resumes, online profiles, and job postings. In this episode, he'll tell us about the Bayesian structural time series model they built to estimate inflows and outflows from companies using LinkedIn data, a very challenging but fascinating endeavor, as you'll hear. As a lot of people, Ben has always used more traditional statistical models, but had been intrigued by Bayesian methods for a long time. When they started working on this Bayesian time series model, though, he had to learn a bunch of new methods really quickly. I think you'll find interesting to hear how it went. Ben also teaches data science and econometrics at the NYU Stern School of Business, so he reflects on his experience teaching Bayesian methods to economic students. Prior to that, Ben did a PhD in economics at the City University of New York and has done research in occupational transformation and social mobility. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 33, recorded September 2, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.com. That's learnbayesstats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence And doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info And adjusts the probability Cause every belief is provisional And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen Maybe cause my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. is it because of my looks or the fact that i talk like i'm mad for books either way hey folks as is becoming usual i'd like to thank all the brand new supporters of the show on patreon especially those in the full posterity or higher and this time is even more special since I am thanking Michael Ostege and Rémi Louf, who are already doing a lot of work for the Bayesian community. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure everyone appreciates all the open source work you're doing. I hope everyone is doing well in these still difficult times. Looks like 2021 isn't much kinder than 2020 yet, right? So take care of you, and now let's talk economics, structural time series, and labor markets with Ben Zweig. Oh, maybe some context, because this is the first episode where I met the guests in the private LearnBasedEd Slack channel. Ben has been supporting the show for a while now, and we got to talking, and I realized that he's doing a pretty amazing job applying Bayesian stats in industry. So this is pretty powerful serendipity, right? Okay, now really Let's go on to the show. 
Ben Zweig, welcome to Learning Patient Statistics. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having you there. I'm super happy to have you there because just for the backstory for listeners, we actually met on the Learn Based Stats uh, Slack channel because you're one of my favorite people in the world because you're one of the uh, of the patrons of the of the podcast. So again, thank you for that. And also, I've been trying to do more shows about both time series and more economics side of things. So I think you're basically a, a gift from heaven. Oh, fantastic. I hope it's that good. It's a lot of expectations to live up to. But yeah, big fan of the show. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Let's start as usual with uh, with your story because you you studied economics, you did a PhD in economics, as I said in the introduction to the show. But I'm curious, did you study economics since you graduated from high school, or did you meander a bit? Yeah, I did study economics straight from you know when I started college, mm -hmm. but there was some meandering within that. So yeah, I mean, I studied, yeah, so I studied economics in, in college and then did a master's in risk management because I graduated college in 2009. And, you know, right after the financial crisis, everyone thought risk management was going to be like the cool thing everyone should do. Turns out it wasn't all that helpful to me, but started a PhD in economics right after that and was really kind of surprised when I started because it's very different from undergraduate studies in economics. So I was kind of expecting a lot more content and theory, but really a PhD in economics is essentially a PhD in statistics. Mm. It's a very empirical discipline and, you know, there's lots of models and it was kind of funny, you know, I, before grad school, I was like following the economy. I was like, you know, keeping tabs on like what was happening in the world. And during grad school, when I was actually studying economics, I knew nothing about the economy. It was, it was all like statistics. I see. That's actually interesting what you're what you're saying because I don't think I would have I would have expected that uh, you know and actually I'm curious what drew you into economics you know even even for the bachelor you know what were you thinking when you went out of high school and were you thinking oh I should, I'd like to do some economics now it's really hard to say I don't I don't remember that much but I think I you know I remember just taking some introductory economics classes. I don't know, I found them very compelling. So, you know, there's big emphasis on equilibrium and causality and kind of understanding how the social world works from a very, like, you know, in a very rigorous methodological way. And I, I just found that to be kind of intellectually compelling. So I just liked it. Just thought it was fun. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I have a real uh, if I have a better reason than that. No, that's nice. Yeah, I think that's also, you know, part of the life you know I, I often you're like you're attracted to some field or or method and you don't you don't really understand why but it clicks with you right away you know and, uh, and you don't want to do yeah. that yeah 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 i think it was the same thing for me when i discovered patient modeling and like just the you know the fact of really love the idea of having a an idea of how the world works for a certain question and being able to put that, to write down all of that, you know, on paper and then in a model, in code, and then using computers for what they are very good at, which is computing a lot of stuff very quickly. And then having part of an answer to your question, I mean, 
that's something I really I'm always amazed at, you know, when I when I do a model. So yeah, that's great that you know, this kind of thing that you can't really explain why, but you love them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering which field did you like in particular in economics and which field did you study also in, in your PhD? Yeah, I started off studying more kind of finance and development. So, you know, development in economics is more like international development. Yeah. I like those a lot, but at the end of my graduate studies, I got really into labor economics. Mm. That's pretty much my field these days. So, yeah, I mean, labor economics is essentially you know, the study of labor markets, but it's very broad. I mean, it's probably the m most empirical of the economic disciplines, of the economic subjects. And I like that about it, but it also encompasses a lot of details about life in general, you know, how people spend their time, whether people choose to learn new subjects, where they work, how long they stay, etc. And it's also quite an interesting market because it's what economists call like a two-sided market. Like, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you want to pick out an apple, you know, you choose the apple, but the apple doesn't have to choose you, right? And in labor markets, both sides do have to choose. It's got this, like, complexity that comes from, you know, there needing to be a match on both sides. So that makes it kind of... Um, Kind of an interesting discipline. Yeah, definitely super interesting. So you you did quite a good job there of already defining what what those fields are to the listeners. So what I want to ask you instead is, you said that your field currently is labor economics, and so I'm wondering how Bayesian this field is in, in your opinion and in your experience. Not so Bayesian, I'd say these days. But I do think, I'm pretty optimistic that Bayesian methods will be adopted pretty quickly. I think economics is, is getting a lot more computational. So there's a whole part of the field that's getting very into machine learning and more topics like that. And also, also getting into like computational macro, like a lot of, there's a lot of Julia users these days. I mean, where, where I am at NYU, there's, for whatever reason, they love Julia there probably more than other schools. I don't know why. Maybe it's a coincidence. But yeah, it's getting very computational. And I think, you know, one thing about economics, even though it is very empirical and there's a lot of statistics, there's a lot of study of causality, it's, I think it's not so advanced in engineering. I think people, you know, still use a lot of like Stata and MATLAB and now people are using R and Python a lot more, but it's, It's slow. I don't think, I don't think economists are necessarily the best engineers in the way that maybe physicists, you know, have to have a strong engineering background. So I do think there's, you know, with Bayesian models in general, you know, despite the good work that, that you and others are doing, I think there is kind of an engineering hurdle to start using PPLs. I think that's, that's a barrier, but that's getting better every day. And so I think the demand is there. I just think, um, there are some engineering constraints. Yeah, I completely completely see see what you mean. I hope I and I hope the the the, the widespread adoption of R Python Julia in these fields is going to help patient methods get more popular and I'd bet on that because um Yeah, you have in all these three languages, you have super, super good and robust and state-of-the-art probabilistic programming languages that people can use almost 
out of the box, like conditional on having some knowledge on Bayesian statistics and how generative model works and so on. So it's a big conditional, I would say, because most of most people don't have, didn't learn Bayesian statistics at, as they learned, I don't know, uh, traditional statistics in, in universities, but it's, right. it's complete, completely doable. Um, I, I mean, most of, most of us in the Bayesian world just learned patient stats on the side and on on our on ourselves because we had to. Just to put this into context, like most of my professors, and I imagine most of your professors, you know, had to run regressions on punch cards when they were in grad school. Yeah. So they wouldn't even know where to begin when it when it comes to these like really computationally expensive methods. So so I think there's already a lot of movement in that direction. And it hasn't even been so long since these these methods have even even been possible. Yeah, yeah, no, clearly, clearly. So, so really hope that uh, that this uh, this adoption of of new, of more recent and above all open source and widespread languages will will help with that. And as you say, I really think too that good software engineering practices uh, have to have still to trickle down to fields like economics and I'm guessing other social sciences because yeah it's just from my experience from knowing some people doing economics in France um, stuff that we consider basics for us are not used in this environment like just version controlling your code, stuff like that, you know, this is clearly not widespread for now. Totally. It's a long road ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, the, the, the best, you know, would have to, to have a niche economics paper, some people coming from the outside, you know, like uh, having some uh, both software engineering and PPL background coming in these papers and helping people make the most out of that, you know, and just saying, oh, you know, you don't have to write. Custom Gibbs sampler now. You <laughs> just use PyMC or Turing or Stan. You know, <laughs> there still are a lot of people in economics who write, you know, their own likelihood functions and try to do that in, um, you know, programs like Stata and MATLAB. And they would just have so much of an easier time using something like PyMC three. So I, I think there are ways to kind of inch closer without going totally deep you know, head first. That is super interesting, but also we, we touched a bit on this self-learning aspect that any, almost any patient has to come through. And so I'm wondering how did you end up in the stats and data world? Because you basically, you started with economics. And as we said, it's, it's not always very well connected to the data science and in software engineering world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's quite well connected to the statistics world, but not the software engineering world. Yeah, exactly. I think um, in economics, there's such a heavy focus on causality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, working on causal models, I think is, is not exactly what most people do in data science in the private sector. But it's... Um, yeah, I think it's a really good foundation because you you start thinking about data generating processes and um, and what can go wrong with data collection and um, confounding variables and you start thinking about the nuances of of data. So then you know it's just a question of of learning the engineering. So for me, I started teaching stats while I was in grad school, and you know then maybe halfway through I started a job at you know as a quant at a hedge fund. It was an emerging markets hedge fund, and I was 
building statistical models for them, trying to predict the likelihood of a country defaulting on their debt. And that was very interesting. Really, really fun models. I liked it a lot. But, you know, I was kind of the only quantitative person on the desk. So, you know, I kind of thought that I wanted to learn more from more experienced data scientists. So my first job out of grad school was at IBM. I was working in their chief analytics office. And there were lots of data scientists there. And the nice thing about, you know, working at IBM is that there's a lot of push to use the most sophisticated methods. So we did a lot of deep learning and natural language processing and kind of got exposed to kind of the more like cutting edge data science techniques. And that was really fun. I mean, that was totally new to me. I didn't even know data science was a title when I took that job. That's very funny. I'm wondering how long it took you you know, for, for you to feel comfortable with this new world and this new field? It's a really good question. I mean, as far as the engineering goes, uh, longer than it should have. I started learning Python when I got there, so I didn't know any Python beforehand. And it um, probably took me like a year to get good at Python. I mean, I'm still not great at Python, but um, probably the first year I was struggling through the engineering, but I think was kind of ready to go early on the statistical side of things. So, you know, we'd be working on a team and there would be some model. And I think it did not take a very long time to be able to contribute and say, you know, how the model should be constructed differently, what was going wrong. Yeah, I think I was pretty well prepared from the statistical side of things. Yeah, I guess that too. And for what it's worth, I think <laughs> I think one year to feel comfortable in, in a new programming language that big, you know, uh, I'd say, I, I, I think it was the same for me. I think it took about a year for me to feel comfortable in writing in Python and thinking in Python, you know, and, and not feel like an imposter, you know. That's really nice to hear. Or at least less. Some people just are able to pick up new languages like it's nothing. I find that so impressive. I, I get jealous. You know, they're like, oh, I just tried this in uh, Haskell and Julia and whatever, you know. I'm just like, that would take me so long. Yeah, I love to think that we have other assets. Or that's the good thing to... <laughs> to <have laughs> yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, before asking you the next question, I did some digging and it turns out that at least one of the founders of the Julia language, Alan Edelman, is a professor of applied mathematics at MIT. So... I think that is one of the reasons why Julia is so popular over there. Mm. I may be mistaken. And of course, there are other reasons for Julia to be popular because from what I understand, it's a great language. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons. And I know there is a, uh, quite a big part of uh, my audience uh, who is uh, working with Julia and so on. So guys, if I was mistaken there or there is another story uh, about uh, why Julia is so popular at MIT, please reach out. <laughs> it would be interesting to, to hear that. But not related to that, I'm going to ask you what I ask every guest, basically, which is, do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods, actually? And why are they attractive to you? And also, how frequently do you use them? I don't remember exactly when I got introduced to Bayesian methods, but I do remember when when Nate Silver's book, The Signal and the Noise, came out. I think that was around 2012. Yeah. That made a really strong case for Bayesian methods. And that was the point when I was like, okay, this is like, you know, something I'm adding to my to-do list. And then 
you know, I sort of shifted my teaching style after that and started, you know, getting a little bit more like philosophically drawn to beta methods, but really didn't start diving into them and using them regularly until quite recently. So, I mean, really recently, like a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very new to this. So um, definitely still learning Bayesian statistics. So good podcast for that. So it's been very recent. That is actually super, super inspiring, I think, also for, for people to, uh, to see people like you picking up Bayesian, Bayesian methods quite late in the end. Um, and that's great. I think it, that also made easier thanks to all the educational resources that we have available online now. I mean, it's, I, I think it's a lot easier to learn Bayesian stats and even programming languages in general in the 2020s than it was in the 1990s. You know, I clearly prefer uh, doing that right now. Yeah. I'm curious with which resources, like more general resources, because I'm going to ask you about specific resources later on in the show when we talk about what you, what you guys do exactly at Revalue Labs. But did you use any general resources about patient, patient stats? And which one did you find the most interesting? I'm a big fan of statistical rethinking. Yeah. It's so good. I read it twice. It's just so well written. And I think is really ideal for people who, you know, kind of, you know, come from more traditional statistical methods. Mm-hmm. Because you, you do start testing, you know, questioning your assumptions, the way models are constructed in a more frequentist way. So that was great. And then the documentation for PyMC3. And I mean, we're using a lot of TensorFlow probability. It's good documentation there too. So yeah, those are kind of the general resources that, that I've used the most. But um, if there are any others, you know, I'll be sure to dip into them. There are a lot of them, but as you say, statistical rethinking, super, super nice book. And I forgot to mention my favorite is uh, this podcast is a great learning resource. (laughs) Well, thanks. Thanks for that. If the podcast um, is at least half as useful as statistical rethinking is, I think I've done my job. So I'm, I'm glad. But yeah, I, statistical rethinking is awesome. And I'm trying actually to get to get Richard McEnroe on the show, but I can get in touch with him. So if someone out there get in touch with Richard and think uh, he would be a, a good um, guest for, for the show, please put me in contact. <laughs> Actually, yeah, well, you mentioned that a bit, but more concretely, uh, more specifically, uh, I'm wondering about your favorite technical stack when you work on, on Bayesian methods. I don't know that I know enough to really compare, but the first big Bayesian model we worked on was a Bayesian structural time series model. And that had a little bit of a m- more mature implementation in TensorFlow probability than it did in PyMC3. So, so I think we, we just started with that because it seemed like an easier implementation. But I think it was very much like under development as we were using it. We were literally like using nightly snapshots. So it was like, it was actually quite difficult to use TFP for that. So I think right now it's probably a little more comfortable to use PyMC3 for me. Well, good to know. Yeah, as you say, Time series is always time series models are are always quite yeah, quite hard to implement and 
But yeah, there is some active uh, development going on on the PyMC3 side. Above all, spearheaded by one of the core devs, Brendan Willard, who does a, lo a lot of work on that and on, on the fork of Theano, a Theano PyMC, and he's trying to, to add a lot of functionality about dynamic linear models and stuff like that that would, that are meant to be integrated into, into the core package one day. But yeah, he's working hard on that and it, it looks, it looks super, super good. And actually he, he came on the podcast. You didn't listen to this episode yet, but through the magic of time travel, normally when you will, uh, when this episode, when your episode is going to air, Brendan's episode will have been released. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> so you will Can't have wait to hear it. Listen to it. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's dig into Bayesian methods at Revelio Labs now. I'm very curious about that. So first. Can you tell us what you guys do in general at Revelio? Yeah, so we're a workforce intelligence company. Basically, what that means is that we, we are essentially trying to construct a universal HR database. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to gather data from all over the public web, things like online professional profiles, job postings, immigration filings, and, and are really trying to reconstruct the HR database for every company. And what that allows is that you can compare the workforce dynamics at different companies. So we're working a lot with hedge funds and private equity firms so that when they are analyzing a company, they can see, oh, are these types of employees leaving the company? Is that a bad sign? Are they hiring people with these key skills at a faster rate than their competitors? Mm -hmm. So it really becomes possible to kind of understand a company through their workforce. Mm -hmm. Which, as you can imagine, is a huge part of every company. Yeah, I bet. I'm curious, does this mean when a big part of your work is basically trying to model and anticipate when people are going to leave uh, their company? or There's basically three kinds of uh, families of big technical problems. So one is that the data itself is all free text. So we have to create taxonomies of occupations and skills and even companies, seniority levels, things like that, so that we know that when someone says they're a lawyer and another person says they're an attorney, they're basically the same thing. And we also need to know that when someone says they're a vice president at JP Morgan versus if someone says they're a vice president at AT&T, those are totally different jobs, totally different seniority levels. So that, that's kind of the natural language processing side of things. The second tough thing about this data is that it's um, biased sample. So, it, you know, if you imagine something like LinkedIn profiles, you know, that skews toward white collar workers. It skews toward certain geographies. So we have to estimate the likelihood of someone having a profile and then imposing sampling weights to make sure that what we represent at the end of the day is what's going on with the underlying population. And the third big problem, which, which is really where, where these Bayesian methods come in. Aha. Yeah, so, so this is the really hard part, is that when someone makes a transition, they don't necessarily update that right away. Yeah. So, you know, you might leave your job and not report that for, you know, three months or six months or however long. So, you know, I wish we could forecast when people would leave in the future, but our job is really to kind of now cast. So we want to understand what's happening today, even though 
what happened today hasn't been reported yet. So it's this exercise in now casting based on what will be retroactively revealed. Fascinating. Yeah, it does say, for instance, my LinkedIn profile, I think I didn't update it yet. You're the one making our lives hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> about that. I made a transition a few months ago and I didn't update it yet. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm basically one one of the reasons of your troubles. Yeah. So, I mean, the nice thing is that we do see multiple snapshots of the full data. So we can estimate the, the distribution of time that it takes someone to update their profile. And that distribution is a function of, you know, a bunch of different things. And then once we have that, we can kind of back into an unbiased expectation of the, the inflow rate and outflow rate of every company, which is, at the end of the day, you know, kind of what we care about. And of course, how that breaks down by occupation and geography and skill, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, okay. And is that because you mentioned before that you, you started working a few months ago, but this uh, patient structural time series model to, to estimate the inflows and the outflows from, from companies. And is this the, the model you were talking about? That's the model. Yeah. Ah, nice. So let's let's dive into this. What can you tell us about it, and what's the goal of the model, and how does it how does it work, basically? Sure. Imagine we have the inflow rates and outflow rates of employees at every company, as as seen by their their start dates and end dates, right? So, and, and we have this data monthly for all companies. So there's like million companies or whatever. Yeah. So you have monthly rates for each companies for millions of companies. Right, right, exactly. And some companies are big, some companies are small. So with some companies, we have a lot of data and for others, it's very sparse. So basically in the raw time series, you'll see that kind of annual attrition, annual hiring rate is like, you know, kind of steady around like, I don't know, 15 to 20%. And then in the latest months, it starts just dipping mm -hmm. and it starts falling quite a lot. And you know, to implausibly low levels, like, you know, attrition rates of like 2% a year, which implies an average, an average tenure of like 50 years, which is just, of course, absurd. So we know that this, is, this isn't actually happening. It's really just that these transitions have been made. They just haven't been reported yet because people haven't gotten around to, the, to updating their profile. And also, I mean, something that compounds that problem even more is that the data that we get is, is web scraped. So there's some latency from that process as well. So basically what we do to address this model is we have a, a general additive model where we have a few different components. So we fit this trend as a function of seasonality, some drift, some covariates like macroeconomic variables. Those are kind of like the basic components. Then we also take what we do observe in every time period relative to other companies. So, you know, let's say all companies are around 2%. If they're a little bit above or a little bit below, that's useful information. But actually the most important component is the lag. So we, we estimate this lag and try to fit this trend with the lag, with the basically the CDF of the lag distribution. So once we use that lag component and fit this model, that actually represents the information loss. So what we do, we fit this model with all these different components, and then we remove the effect of the information loss. And that's our prediction. 
So what we actually, at the end of the day, report is what we expect the data to look like in the absence of this information loss. I see. Yeah, that's quite a quite a complex process to model. Yeah, it's really I think the hardest thing I've. I've ever modeled. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And I also want to give a shout out to my team. I mean, they, they really worked, you know, a lot more on this model than I did. So, you know, a couple of people on the team that, that really put a lot of time into this are Tobias Barch and Bruce Langford. They're amazing. Yeah. It wasn't done in, in one day. So, so actually, actually <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you remember how much time it, it took for the very beginning? and then getting to a good enough version that you were feeling comfortable putting in production? Uh, yeah, I mean, how comfortable we are is such a moving target. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we started working on this, I think, in March. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's been a long time. It's been maybe five months. So I think it started getting really solid maybe two months ago. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's still things that we're fixing. Uh, there's all sorts of complexity with the data. I mean, just, you know, one example of, you know, a weird thing that we discovered kind of recently is there's kind of spikes in January. Mm -hmm. And at first we thought, okay, it's seasonality. You know, there's different hiring trends and I guess people move jobs in January more. But then we actually found out later that it's really just because the way the data was captured is that anytime someone just put a year, then it gets stored as January. So, you know, someone might have left their job in May 2015, and they just say 2015, and it gets captured as January 2015. Ah, uh, yeah. So we have this spike, which, which doesn't sound so problematic if it were consistent over time. But the issue is that, you know, if someone says they left a job in 2015, they might just put the year. But if someone left a job in May 2019, they're more likely to put the month. So the January spike actually falls as we get closer to the present. So that's something that's like really weird and complicated to model. But, you know, we're chipping away at this stuff little by little. From everything you you explained so far, I really understand why you went with the patient framework because it, it allows you to to really integrate all this all this information and which is basically domain knowledge into into the model. And but actually I, I'm curious about how it started. How did you start thinking about the model and when did you when were you positive and decided on the fact that you needed the Bayesian approach here? So we had had a model before which used uh, profit, so Facebook profit, which is technically Bayesian, but um, just wasn't as flexible as we needed it to be. And that model was kind of giving us problems. I mean, we had a and so I think that the real impetus to kind of revisit this model and kind of start from scratch was that for small companies, we were doing a particularly bad job. So for small companies, we might see zero inflows and outflows in recent months. And, you know, that doesn't seem like a very good expectation. So we really, we really wanted to learn from similar companies. We're most drawn to building a hierarchical model so that we can learn from similar companies. So that was, I think, the main driver for us. Yeah, okay. So I'm guessing that was at the at the very beginning of the process then, of the modeling process. Yeah. I mean, what we ended up doing was not, was not exactly hierarchical, but was kind of hierarchical in spirit, where we actually didn't, 
the proper hierarchical way to do it would be to kind of, you know, estimate a population trend and then go down to industry and then maybe like sub-industry and then company, right? But what we did, we actually, we actually had this other data about company similarity that we got from some other models. And so we actually had the company similarity matrix. Like for every company, we kind of knew their peers. So we kind of borrowed from the literature on synthetic controls, which is maybe not such a popular thing to do outside of economics, but in economics, it's very popular, where it's used in difference in differences models quite a lot. Ah, yeah. So, you know, you want to see what's happening in a given state or in a given entity. So you compare to group of different entities with different weights. And that group, you, you know, you essentially create like a synthetic state. So what we really did was we took all these different weights from peer companies and created a synthetic company for every company. And that was what we kind of regularized toward rather than an industry. So I actually, I think that model worked out really well. I think that was a good choice in retrospect to have every company kind of regularized toward a different expectation rather than regularized toward a broad industry. That's indeed an interesting approach. I think I understand yeah, the, the link with the definitive approach. That's actually something interesting that maybe I should cover on the podcast with our whole episode because definitive is... Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting method. Yeah. I'm mostly used for causal inference, if I understood correctly. Yeah. From all this process, you know, I'm wondering what was easier than what you expected and what was harder than your expectation. Nothing was easier than expected. <laughs> the problem itself was really hard. So I think even outside of the implementation, I think there are just some weird companies we, you know, had a hard time like inferring when different companies have different types of seasonalities, like, you know, some retail companies hire a lot in the holiday season. And that was something we wanted to pick up. And when COVID hit, you know, we were like, how are we going to capture this? You know, so we were very nervous about that. I mean, we, we eventually did kind of find a way to use external variables. Another really tough thing was disambiguating between sort of distinguishing between voluntary and involuntary attrition, mm -hmm. right? So when someone leaves a company, they probably don't like voluntarily, they probably don't take as long to update their profile. But if someone gets fired, they're in no rush. So that was a really tricky thing to add into the model. But also on the implementation side, it was really tricky. I mentioned briefly that um, we were using a very like in-development version of TensorFlow probability. So, you know, using non-Gaussian distributions was a little tricky and not as straightforward as we, as we would have thought. I mean, I'm sure they, I mean, they, they were making like daily progress while we were doing it. So they probably solved like most, if not all these problems by now. But it was just really, really tough to implement this. I mean, we were also kind of new to um, probabilistic programming languages. So, you know, kind of struggling through everything you struggle through with learning a new language. <laughs> yeah. I think the, you know, the team was really strong and, and we did this in a pretty good amount of time, I think. I mean, five months for a complicated model in a framework you didn't really master before on that is, is pretty decent, I'd say. Yeah, and we had really good papers. Mm. So th there were two papers that were very helpful. I mean, one from Hal Varian and Stephen Scott mm -hmm. at Google, which was all about 
now casting with Bayesian structural time series. That was very relevant. Mm -hmm. Another one with um, Oliver Stoner and Theo Akinamuno. Yeah. That was also very good. And and we actually spoke to them. I mean, they, they were happy to like get on a call with us and help us think through this problem. So they, they were really they were really great also. I'll definitely put these papers in their show notes because that sounds super interesting. Actually, it's a, a, a question that came to my mind when you were talking about that was why are these kind of models called structural time series? What does the structural part mean? The short answer is I don't really know, but if I had to guess, it's that they're additive. You know, the seasonality component, for example, can be completely isolated. And, you know, the additional covariates can be completely isolated. So you can kind of just add these components on top of each other or just remove one and the model still behaves properly. So they probably mean structural in that, you know, there's like, there's like, it's, it's kind of modular. You can add or remove components very easily. So if you could steal on these learnings that you, you, you had from this uh, modeling experience, I'm wondering if you could go back in time, which advice would you give your past self to have an even better time building this model and which mistake in particular would you like to avoid? There's certainly a lot of complexity that we overlooked at first, but I don't know if that was like a priori bad. I mean, because we sort of started a little simpler and then got more complex with just probably not a bad way to go about things. So there were, there were things we just learned about the data and how it was collected that would have been great to know. I think we probably should have started off using a higher level framework like PyMC3 mm -hmm. because, you know, we would have, um, I think we would have just, um, you know, understood each component a little bit better. Yeah, I. that's basically all the advice I'd give my past self, I think. <laughs> well, it's not that bad then means your experience was quite good in the end. Yeah, I mean, although it's not even really the end. So maybe uh, maybe I'll get back to you in a couple months and say, yeah. you know, <laughs> we, we overlooked something terrible. <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly. And because, yeah, you know, a model is never really finished. You know, you're just, just one day you're like, okay, that's good enough. We should ship it into production because otherwise we're, we're going to be there for a month and years even. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard a quote recently that uh, statisticians, like artists, have a nasty habit of falling in love with their models. Yeah, that's yeah, completely true. <laughs> it's very relatable. <laughs> and so you, you talked about the, the, those uh, two papers that I put in the show notes that were great inspiration and help for, for building the model. Are there any educational resources that you would advise listeners who are interested in these kind of models? Not so many. I mean, I think the packages in TFP are really good for that. So there's really good documentation there. We actually learned kind of recently that this, uh, this model also has an implementation in Stan, which we don't really look into because, you know, we're, you know, kind of wanted to stay in the Python ecosystem. But yeah, that's probably a very good resource too. And that was actually created by Stephen Scott, one of the one of the authors of the papers. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's I think definitely a good resource. We should is there a link somewhere that we we can add in the in the show notes? Yeah, I'll send you that link for sure. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So, a more more general question now to de-zoom a bit, you know, from from Revelio because you're also a teacher as you said and you have been for quite a long time now actually. So, I'm curious, well, first, I have to ask you this. Do you teach patient methods to your students? In general, maybe no matter 
what you're teaching. I'm wondering what are the essential skills that you're trying to instill in your students? I just started teaching Bayesian methods more. I mean, I'd always included like a little bit, you know, maybe a day or two days just talking about like high level what they're all about. Mm -hmm. But actually last semester I was teaching econometrics mm -hmm. and I included, you know, we spent maybe three days on Bayesian methods. I heard, you know, after every class, the students like fill out a, um, you know, like a form of whatever, they, they rate the course. Yeah. So students in the comments were saying that that was their favorite part of the class. Oh, nice. So now I'm actually preparing for next semester. I actually start teaching tomorrow. Oh. And I'm planning on this being a much bigger part of the course by popular demand. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really great. Yeah. I mean, I also teach a class in like, uh, it's called data bootcamp, but it's basically like, you know, data science light, like for business school students. And I'll also probably include a section in that class too. But that's basically like intro to data wrangling in Python. Yeah, actually, that was going to be my question. Is this theory only or are there, is, uh, there are also practice? And, and what do you use? Which framework do you use to teach them Bayesian methods? Yeah, it used to be just theory and like some math, which I guess falls under theory. But this semester, I think I, I will try to do something a little bit more along the implementation. But I haven't fully decided what to use. So if you have any advice, let me know. Or if any of your listeners have any advice. Yeah, yeah, clearly. Well, I'm biased, you know, uh, because I'm in the BiMC team, so I love BiMC. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, <laughs> sure. no, if you're using Python, go with BiMC. But no, uh, uh, no, kidding, kidding aside, the great thing is that we're living in a time where, where there are so many great uh, framework to do to do probabilistic programming. So, I mean, you can do that in R, in Python, in Julia. That's that's just awesome. And you can you can have a, a robust MCMC implementation with these PPLs, and that's that's really great. There's some point where I'll want to go like full Bayesian for this course, but <laughs> I'm a little resistant now because I think it is going to be kind of more technically challenging. And also, I mean, you, you asked like what I kind of want my students to take away from the class. And one thing that I think about a lot is that when you do data analysis in the wild, I mean, as, as you know, sometimes you see patterns or trends that you think are meaningful, but are actually not meaningful. You know, if you're just thinking through like what you're seeing is actually what you should be seeing, you just things that can go wrong with data and you know, just issues around, around selection or messiness with data or whatever. I think even just like, you know, comparing expectations is a really simple way to get those points across without all the machinery of, of keeping the distributions. So, so I do think there, there is a place for, for just like straight up regression techniques because it is like very, it's very simple. You're just talking about expectations. It's kind of nice if you want to like make one point. Yeah, clearly. Clearly understand what you're saying. And actually, this is absolutely not related, but uh, it just popped into my head because I remember you were saying that one of your problems with the LinkedIn data, so completely switching gears there and coming back to the, the model you have at Revelio, but and you were saying that you were using some sampling to, you know, to compensate for the fact that you are missing some data from some groups sometimes. So 
Uh, I'm wondering which techniques you use there. Do you use like uh, multi-level regression and post-stratification or do you use something else? Yeah, we use uh, post-stratification. So, so we impose post-stratification weights. And then nice. we just basically convert, you know, all the counts and raw inflows and raw outflows to, to kind of scaled versions of those. Yeah, that's nice. Okay, and you, you do that in raw Python or did, are you using some something in there in particular? Yeah, that's raw Python. Yeah, you're just computing the weights because you know, I don't know, this group in the population is X percent of the general population. In our sample, it's Y percent. So we have to, to scale based on these ratios. Yeah, I mean, even getting those scaling weights are quite tricky because we, we don't actually know the ground truth. Yeah. So, you know, what companies report is not actually their full workforce. So companies, when they report their employee headcounts, that's actually just a sliver of their entire workforce because it excludes contingent workers and part-time and stuff like that who are part of the comprehensive workforce. So we actually use more macro data for that. So we use data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the U.S. and globally we use... The ILO, it's the International Labor Organization data. Yeah. It's okay, but you know, I think we, we still have um, pretty strong priors on what we think is reasonable. Yeah, but basically you use these, these data, which are supposed to be close to the grand truth to resample your, well, your, your, your LinkedIn data. Yeah, exactly. That was just a personal curiosity because I work a lot on... Uh, you know, opinion polls and electoral forecasting. So it's always something I have in mind. So one thing I think, uh, I hope I'm speaking for, for a lot of listeners. I would love to see an episode where, where someone interviews you and we hear about what you're working on. Yeah, why not? Uh, that, that, that would be fun. I don't know how it would do as the interviewee, but uh, yeah, that, no, that, that would be fun. I'd definitely be down for this. That, that would be funny. Yeah, so let's put a pin in that. So yeah, before... Um, Get, we're getting shorter on time, but before closing up the show, I, I, I like to ask this question to most of my guests. And you've done a lot of, of modeling in your career, so I'm wondering, you know, if you have a favorite model or method, you know, one that you're always happy to use and and can share with us. I mean, it kind of goes, uh, you know, it changes a lot, and I go through phases. But yeah, actually, part of my dissertation was around pointing out the biases that can result from discretizing data. Yeah. I always have this like visceral aversion to discretization. So I really like kind of kernel-based models, like any like the kind of nearest neighbor type things, but instead of just like drawing a circle around your point, it's it's like, you know, a Gaussian kernel or something like that. Yeah, I really find them to be so elegant and flexible and they work on multiple dimensions. So, yeah, I just find them to be really, really, yeah, I just love working with them. Mm -hmm. They're so simple to implement using just like matrix algebra. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think they're really, really nice. Yeah, 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 definitely. And that makes me think, have, have you looked into, into some Gaussian processes or stuff like that? Because that's... It's also on my to-do list. I'd love to do more, more in Gaussian processes, but... Uh, yeah, haven't really gotten around to it. Yeah, because from what you're saying, this is also uh, very elegant from thy point of view in the, the, like evaluating the the autocorrelation throughout, you know, the matrix that you have, which can be in time on, or space or or else any continuous dimension. It's super, super nice and, you know, mathematically very elegant. Yeah. I also think, I mean, part of the big benefit from deep learning models 
is, I almost want to say it's underrated, but maybe it's properly rated, is that it's not, it's not so much that they're great at prediction. It's that, it's that you get these high-dimensional representations of entities. Like in natural language processing, you get, you know, you get these representations of words. And you know, we have some models where we get these high-dimensional representations of companies and job titles and skills and stuff. And I think working in this like kind of embedding space is really cool. I think that's something that it's kind of like a nice, it's something that you kind of get for free from deep learning models. And, and I think, it, you know, integrating them into, into Bayesian methods is really cool. It's something I want to do more of. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I don't think I, I heard that before. So thanks for this stimulating thought. <laughs> okay, Ben, we're getting short on time. So we we're going to wrap up there. But before letting you go, as you know, I have to ask you the, the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So the first one is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? I think there's some, there's some topics that when you think about them, it's like really hard to think about anything else. Like I know a lot of people think this about climate and you know, I think Bob Lucas said this about economic growth. Some people think of this about politics. And I really think, I feel this way about, about labor markets. I think it's just... They're so important. It's like really hard to imagine thinking anything is more important. It's like how people in the world spend their time. And I really think it's so inefficient these days. Like if you compare it to capital markets, I mean, you know, capital markets are, are very efficient these days. You know, there's like a real science to how capital gets allocated in our society. And when it comes to labor, we are like in the stone ages. I mean, if you think about how people choose their career, for example, I mean, I don't know, what, what do they like talk to their friends or their parents? Like, it's just based on anecdotes. But this data is out there. You know, we could see people's career paths and how that played out for them, how much money they ended up making. You know, we, we can have data around transition likelihoods. And um, yeah, I think people need a research tool like that. And when companies hire people, they, they also are mostly like in the dark. So I think what we're doing at Revelio Labs is kind of, is kind of setting the groundwork for that. Like we're trying to, you know, create like structured data around human capital. But yeah, I think there's so much more to do. So this career stuff, I think, is is something that I really want to get to eventually. But it's not like probably not as much money in it. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, these days you gotta follow what's lucrative, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, but I I really love this answer. A really original answer, by the way. But really love that. Yeah, and clearly it speaks to, to me and to my experience that, yeah, like allocation of, of labor market and labor resources and turn, it seems super suboptimal. Totally. Compared to, to, as you say, compared to capital markets, for instance. It's a mess. Yeah. Not to degrade the field of labor econo economics. I mean, I think there's like a lot of really smart people working on this, but not, not nearly enough. It must be also, I'm guessing, harder because you're dealing with humans, you know, and not with just money as in capital markets or stuff like that. Yeah, there's this two-sided thing which makes it really difficult. There's no like secondary market where you can um, mm. basically like sell something you bought. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's, it's definitely a much harder set of problems. But hey, you know, someone's got to do it eventually, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's do that, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so second question is if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? I really should have like one thought out answer to this, but I'm really torn. I'd say probably Gary Becker, who is, 
I think probably the most brilliant economist to ever live. But, you know, that's my opinion. The reason why I think he'd be really interesting to have lunch with is because he has this way of formalizing things that are very intuitive. Like, he, I think probably one of his most famous papers is the theory of the allocation of time. And, you know, I feel like if we were ordering and just looking at the menu, he'd have like a way of like, like a model to think about what to order and how much time to take and like where to sit. I just feel like he'd be able to formalize things that seem really kind of mundane. And that just like, I don't know, it tickles me in a way. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, very original answer too, because I think you're the first one, uh, first guest to, to, to choose Gary Baker, but uh, definitely a nice choice. Well, Ben, thank you very much for taking the time. It was um, a pleasure talking with you about uh, economics and, and time series. You guys sure do a very interesting job at uh, Revalio, and I'm always happy to see how the Bayesian framework is used Concretely, as usual, I put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Ben, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, you bet. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation. Yeah.